I'm Regina Beach, and you're listening to Said and Returns, a show about stories with the clear before and after. Today we're talking to Molly Mitchell, Homer, Alaska native, and bushcraft student. Molly, how are you doing today? Um, I'm pretty good. You know, had a couple cups of coffee, made a basket. Tell us about the basket you made. Um, it's woven out of reeds, and you push it down tight, um... Over, under, over, under. Lots of that. And, uh, yeah, take some dogwood on top for a nice red rim and uh, alternate hitch. Some some sort of tie-in on top. And uh, you've got yourself a nice little pack frame once you add straps. so Or pack basket. Yeah. Cool. Will you give a little bit of background on yourself and introduce yourself? I was born and raised in Alaska, out in the swamp, so most of my friends were trees once uh, the only young person moved into town, (laughs) and so I uh, spent a lot of time out in the woods, romping around, looking for fairies and stuff like that. My family did a lot of camping. I was right on the coast, across the bay, you know, and so we're about a 45-minute boat ride from all sorts of mountains and hikes. You can get to glaciers, you can climb ridges. Poots Peak is a good one. It's nice and picturesque. So I kind of began early learning how to be comfortable living outside or spending nights outside and enjoying it. Um, that was kind of built into the culture of the town that I grew up in. Yeah, I sl- it was a long process for me. I didn't like it at first, but I slowly developed the ability to be comfortable out there and even relish sleeping in a tent and waking up in a tent and having the sun and the trees. Yeah, so that's a big reason of how I ended up here at Bushcraft School. (laughs) You know, it's a really, it's a new level of being out there. You're not dependent on a cook stove. You know, it's like, it's not learning how to use a cook stove. It's learning how to use fire which is a much purer form. And I I always struggled with the idea of, you know, really severe leave-no-trace um, because it's important, and in some areas it's crucial that nothing is touched and you leave nothing. But, I you know, I grew up in Alaska, so there's so much wild and populated land, and there's not enough people in it to screw it up. So, really, you have the flexibility to use your environment and interact with it you know that's that's the thing with severe leave no trace it's almost like you're you're just kind of a bystander it's like people don't exist right or you're trying to yeah you're trying to pretend like like we don't exist with the landscape it's just a backdrop for wherever you are and that seems kind of almost beside the point you know you you want to be in it you want to live with it or spend time with it and that's why that's why you go out there you know can you talk a little bit about the cabin you live in and what you'll take back from bushcraft school uh when you go home yeah so i live in a cabin i think it's 16 by 20 with a loft it's all solar powered um so we have a couple of batteries and an inverter and it's wired through the house so you know we have light switches and they work but at night you flip off the inverter and so you don't have any light or any electricity 
Uh, and we supplement with a generator. My f- friend that I live with makes a lot of music, so that's a lot of different electronics that plug in. Um, and so for that, a generator is kind of necessary. We just don't have enough panels at this point to support all that, but um, we're working up toward adding more panels and trying to figure out how to do that. And then for water, we have a mountain-fed spring, um, and it it comes up on a big, it has like an outlet on this big hill um, above the cabin, and so there's piping underground from that outlet to a spigot basically that's about 50 feet from the cabin and uh the grav it's gravity fed so we just turn on the spigot and we have rushing cold fresh water um you know you don't need to purify it it's it's tasty you know it's spring water (laughs) and it's 50 feet away so that's great we haul a big five gallon bucket so we have dishes and there's like a system of tubes that go down so you can turn it on and off it's hooked up to the faucet through a tube as well so you can turn on the faucet it's like you know having all the amenities but you have to fill up that five gallon bucket every couple of days and drag it wood stove of course but you know with a cabin that size it's pretty easy to get it really hot and toasty there's a grate up to the loft so heat can travel more easily but it gets more hot with a fire like too hot often with a fire in the house but we'll see this winter what is it like in the winter in alaska is it really dark is it really cold um yeah i I haven't spent a winter in alaska in a couple of years but it's you know it's a it's a hard time and it's a harsh but it's beautiful it's really just yeah you think of black on white like this stark contrast and the glittering of the snow, it's just like little jewels everywhere. Um, and this blanket of silence, like really everything's slow. Everything's sleeping. Um, and it's hard if you want to keep going and keep running and keep up this summer pace, you know. But if you accept that you can't do that and that you're an animal and all these animals are slowing down so you slow down too and once you embrace that it's a really lovely thing you know and you can there's pleasure in bundling up real warm and going out and not being cold and being cozy enough to lay out and just look at the stars because the stars are crazy they're just so bright and you have them for so long there's no obstruction there's no light pollution that's kind of how i feel about the stars here that they're so bright and so awesome yeah it's um it's interesting you know some people have never seen that you know in in new mexico some kids would be like oh my god a shooting star you know i've never seen a shooting star before and i'm lucky for that to be foreign to me You know, I grew up looking at Orion out my window every night, and I didn't realize how special that was to have those stars till I met people who had never had them before. Tell me more about the schooling in New Mexico and what that was like. Well, that's a whole big can of worms, but um, yeah, it was a two-year program in international school. 
I initially wanted to go abroad, but they sent, because there's 15 different campuses in different countries, but they sent me to the one in the U.S., which I'm grateful for now because I've really grown to love the Southwest and New Mexico. It's a lovely state, really high up there with Alaska. But it was a standardized two-year program. Yeah, it was really, it was supposed to emphasize aspects of sustainability, you know, and of course, intercultural understanding and social justice and um, community uh, work. But it really, when I was there, they were ramping up the academics. And it was pretty clear that that's what administration cared about above all things. And so I really, I went for all the other pieces. You know, I went for the academics, but what stood out to me was the other pieces. And they were just drowned out. There wasn't enough funding. There wasn't enough time. There weren't. There wasn't enough energy among the students because the academics were so hard. Um, and I think it's really unfortunate because, you know, it's like I had the flexibility and you know the, I was in a good enough place with my family, to sacrifice some of my academics to really meet people and spend time out in the woods and work on the farm and hang out at the farm and get to know the guy who managed it. But uh, a lot of people didn't have that opportunity or didn't take it. And they spent their whole two years in the little bubble of campus. Um, Yeah, so it was a really strange, strange experience. But I met a lot of really interesting people and people I'll stay in touch with my whole life. So, you know, there's always value in that. You talked about working on a farm in New Mexico, and I know you also work on a farm in Alaska. Can you talk about growing food? Growing food is a, you know, it's a tricky thing, especially in New Mexico. Your issue is water. Um, How can you maximize water usage? You know, how and in like in the summer, it's sun, you know, there's too much sun, it's too hot. And then in Alaska, you have plenty of water. The water table is ridiculously high, but it's cold, you know, like frost can kill a lot of your crops. And it's like, what crops can we grow here? And this season, it was really tough because there was so much water, it flooded our fields and we lost half of our crops, you know, and losing half your crops is a serious thing. That's a lot of money, that's a lot of labor, that's a lot of time, and suddenly you have empty empty field when you should have something you can sell. Um, it's, it's hard, and it, it takes a lot of time. Like, you have to really commit to staying in one place and um, working almost every day, you know? And it's, it's hard to make money. Um, The people I work for in Alaska, they calculated it out once and they make something ridiculous like 50 cents an hour for what they put in. You know, it's like, it's crazy. It's your life. It's a lifestyle. It's not a job. It's a lifestyle. Um, It has to be in order for it to work and you eat what you grow. What types of things were you growing? Carrots, lettuce. Our big thing was Salanova lettuce, um, which is becoming more popular. It was developed in... Uh, Sweden, I think. We started experimenting with spinach this year, which I grew a lot of in New Mexico, and it it grows great. It's really easy, keeps growing back after you cut it. Cabbages, 
beets. Beets grow well in Alaska. Kale grows great, but doesn't sell as well. People don't know the differences between radishes and turnips most of the time. <laughs> it's like you really massive turnips and people are right next to radishes, you know, that are little and red. And people just think you have the mass, like the biggest radish imaginable. And <laughs> it's, yeah, it's funny, you know, the selling part of it is interesting people you know you're setting prices for the whole plant but people buy a root and they just eat the root they don't realize you can eat the beet greens you know or the turnip greens which are great and full of nutrients you know so but I mean we make the money it's shame they waste the food but you obviously know a lot about cultivated crops but I think at bushcraft school you've spent a lot of time exploring wild plants edible plants medicinal plants can you talk a little bit about that yeah, so I did a little bit farming in Alaska just because there's chamomile that grows as a weed. So I my job is to weed it out, and I just throw it off to the side and gather it later, dry it on my dash of my car, and uh, chop it up later. But it was kind of haphazard, and here I really started realizing, you know, I need I need different medical solutions and uh, the pharmaceutical companies aren't meeting my needs, you know? And neither are the alternative doctors. So I need to start making medicine myself. And there's so many plants that offer different medicines out there. It's, It's crazy that it's not a bigger part of our medicine system because it's like there's plants that offer, you know, things that we don't have medicines for right now. Can you give some examples of what you found and what they're good for? So I've gathered, I've spent a lot of time gathering gold thread. It's a very fine root and it's bright gold. It's beautiful. You know, handling it, it's really, you feel like you're holding gold and it is. Um, It really, it's good for pulmonary issues, like secondary, more severe pulmonary issues. Um, really good for the digestive system, helps support, um, basic bodily functions. You know, a lot of these herbs, um, just strengthen your natural systems, um, in addition to whatever specific thing they treat. Um, I have wild sarsaparilla, which is a relative in the ginseng family, but it's, it's less of a stimulant and more of kind of like a blood purifier. Like it helps you sweat. It makes you pee. It helps rid, you know, get flush out toxins in your body. I have Colt's foot, which is really good for your lungs. It's kind of like mullen and it can help you cough and clear things out in high doses. It can be complicated. It can, um, it has a quality, that's harmful to your liver. And so that's where it's like, I'm just starting this, you know, there's so much to learn and I'm gonna have to do a lot of research before I begin to use the tinctures that I made because I need to know what complications there are. I need to know specifically how to do dosage um, to make sure that I'm not taking too much and to know if I need to take more to actually treat something. But it's a very different kind of medicine, you know, it's not rapid. All of these things, they take time, and you have to take them frequently. And it's like, I think we get a little bit lazy about our health 
with the medical system we have right now. We don't want to deal with it, and then we last minute it's like, oh, give me give me a pill, they'll fix instantly it fix, fix it, it fix it all, you know, and it just doesn't really work that way. And plants, you know, you have to recognize that, and you can't expect them to work like a pill. They're not a pill. They're a slow working medicine that strengthens your body and everything in it. It's not killing parts of your body, it's strengthening them. Can you explain what a tincture is and the process you use to make it? So a tincture is, it's a lot stronger than a tea or an infusion. You preserve finely chopped fresh plant material or dry material in alcohol and each plant has different medicinal components and those constituents can be water soluble or alcohol soluble so more advanced tincturing you find out which components it has and whether they're alcohol or water soluble and you'll make your water alcohol ratio depending on that Um, some take only alcohol some are only water you know and that's basically a tea and some are 50 50 most have consist of mostly alcohol and like a quarter water and you have two two parts solvent the alcohol water mixture and one part to one part plant so at this point I don't have anything to measure so I've just been filling up the jar as well as I can you know usually three quarters of the way full with finely chopped plant material and then I'll estimate 75% grain alcohol I'm using Everclear and 25% water preferably distilled but I'm using well water it will just be a little weaker but probably not noticeably so just because of the extra minerals and stuff that are in the water and then you let it sit out of the sunlight in a you know relatively moderate temperature location Um, which is tricky here, of course. I have them in the library because I figure that's the most stable environment for them. You can let them, like, at least two to three weeks is the sit time before you decant the plant material and express only the liquid. You can let them sit longer. You can let them... They have a shelf life of 10 years. Yeah, so... um, And some plants take months to really extract all of their medicinal components. Some take two weeks, you know? But I've decided that I'm gonna ship them home with the plant material in them and really learn more about it before I decant them to make sure I'm getting the most out of the plants that I've harvested. It's, uh, you know, there's tincture presses if you, to be more efficient. Because at this point, I'm just gonna have cheesecloth and I'm gonna pour it over cheesecloth and squeeze with my hands. But you can see how you know, a mechanized press system is going to extract a lot more liquid out of those little plant materials than your hands can. So eventually I would like to invest in a tincture press. But at this point, these are all rough tinctures. And I'll work up to the more advanced tinctures the more I learn. First one's for learning. Exactly. (laughs) Uh, What are some of the things that you'll take away from your bushcraft school experience? What are your future goals academically or career-wise? Well, I definitely like to come back here at some point. I I don't think this is my last course through Jack Mountain. They offer a lot of really cool programs, and I'd like to find a educational institution that has, will allow me to take time and do these trips and get credit for them. I think I'm really going to have to shape a learning experience 
to myself and find a way to balance using an institution and also having the time to pursue things on my own and to do things like this. I'm really grateful I came here. I've learned a lot of skills. And I don't know that necessarily bushcraft is exactly what I want to pursue, but I I really appreciate it and I think it's really opened me to learning more about how connecting to the basic humanity that a lot of us have forgotten, being comfortable with the land and knowing it in a much deeper way than people nowadays do. Yeah, long term, I don't really know, but it sounds like I might be starting a homestead, so um, there's talk of goats, apparently, and (laughs) rabbits, and ducks, chickens, you know, the works, so... Um, starting to build the infrastructure back home on the cabin to work with those animals, learning how to make cheese and milk. Yeah, so I f- that seems pretty close to what I want to do. You know, I I don't think I'd fit in a conventional job. So finding offhand guiding work, you know, kayak guiding in the summer and working with animal husbandry and learning how to make money off of that and permaculture, you know, berries. You can just plant them and leave them and harvest, you know, and yeah, so that's the general direction I'm going, but I'm kind of playing it by ear. Is there anything else you want to share? I don't think so. I mean, yeah, I don't know. (laughs) Thanks for talking with us. (laughs) Thank you. I'm Regina Beach, and you've been listening to Sadden Returns. If you like what you hear, you can subscribe on iTunes or check us out at facebook.com slash Podcast. See you next time.